Hebrews chapter 8. I sometimes go at the heart, I sometimes go at the head. This morning I'm going to do a little of both, but it's going to be a little bit on the head thing. So I hope you have your coffee so you can sing and stay awake and follow me on some of this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8 is the kind of theme that we've been preaching on on and off for quite some time now. Starting with verse 4. Now if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle in the Old Testament, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. God instructed Moses in very minute details over the process of ten chapters in the book of Leviticus and Exodus about exactly how to construct this tabernacle. And the author tells us that everything about the pattern that Moses did was a copy and shadow of things to come. It, it points to the reality of who God is and the relationship that he has with us in the new covenant. There are a lot of books that go into great detail about every detail of that, the pattern of that. We're just trying to hit some of the highlights. The fact that there's a tabernacle already tells us that God wants to tabernacle with His people. He wants to dwell with His people. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to dwell in us. He wants us to dwell in Him. And He wants that to be an eternal thing. We look at some of the furniture of this tabernacle in the Old Testament. The ark and the holy of holies, which was the center of this whole thing. You had a... The, the, the tabernacle consists of three parts, an outer court, then the holy place, and the holy of holies. And the holy of holies is where you found the Ark of the Covenant, with the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. And we talked about how that represents the Trinity, the triune God, focused on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All relationship with God is a relationship with the triune God, focused on the uh, sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then we looked in the holy place, we looked at the uh, candlesticks. Which represents Jesus as the light of the world and how if you're going to know God and fellowship with God, you need to have your eyes opened by the light of God. We talked about the incense, which is, stands for our praise and prayer. And if you're going to have a relationship with God and the kind of intimate relationship that He wants, your life has to be characterized by praise, worship, and prayer as incense going into the Lord. We talked about the table of showbread two weeks ago, which shows us how we need to always be consuming Jesus Christ, who is the bread of the world. And there has to be this sort of spiritual metastasis that goes on. As we take him into our being, we don't just sniff him and let him rub on him or whatever. We've got to ingest him and take him into the core of our being. That is the holy place. Now I want to talk about the outer court. And the piece of furniture that I want to talk about this morning is really not a piece of furniture at all. It's what surrounds the whole tabernacle. It gets the walls of the tabernacle. Around this whole tabernacle were these seven and a half foot walls. They were 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. There were 60 pillars of this tabernacle that held them up. Uh, 20 on each side and 10 on the ends. And most significantly, the walls were all white. In the glaring sun of the desert, the Lord told them to make an all-white tabernacle. And scholars are agreed that this stands for the holiness of God. The walls are there all around the tabernacle. They're high enough so you can't peek in. In fact, it was forbidden in the law to peek in. It was forbidden in the law to try to peek under. It was forbidden in the law to try to get access into the things of God in any other way other than the door that the Lord had provided. The walls stand as a blockade to the natural mind, the natural man, to get into the things of God. And what it tells us in a nutshell is this. 
Surrounding everything that pertains to God is, the Bible calls, inapproachable light. It is His holiness. It is His transcendence. It is His sovereignty. It is His being that outruns every attempt that we'd ever have to know it on our own basis. You can't know the things of God, get into the things of God, the transcendent, sovereign God, aside from the ways that He's provided for us, through the doors that He's provided for us. There's two strands of teaching in the Bible, and it's important that we hold these together. On the one hand, you find throughout the Bible, but emphasized in the Old Testament in particular, the sense of the bigness of God, the grandeur of God, the awesomeness of God, even the terror of God. You're taught to fear the Lord, to have this, not to be afraid of God, but this deep reverence at the awesomeness of God. Okay, so it's the sovereignty, the transcendence, the Lord of history, the God who's way, way up there and big and powerful and holy and against all sin. There's a second strand you find uh, taught throughout the Bible, but it's emphasized especially in the New Testament, and that is God's closeness, His imminence, His, his love, His grace, His mercy. He's a friend of ours. He's our Father. Sometimes the Bible portrays Him as our mother. We need to hold both of these in balance. Because they're taught throughout the, the, the Bible. It's not like the transcendence and sovereignty of God was lost became in the New Testament. It's in the New Testament that you find the teaching that our God is a consuming fire. Okay, so there's this, there's this awesome side to God. If you emphasize the sovereignty and transcendence and awesomeness without the closeness, you end up with an austere God that you feel crushed under, you feel hopeless. If you emphasize the grace, the closeness, the mercy, without emphasizing the transcendence, or at the expense of the transcendence, you end up with a God who's kind of buddy-buddy. Uh, grace loses its depth and profoundness. His love loses meaning. Worship ceases to be profound. If you develop kind of a casual relationship with God, an overly casual relationship with God, you know, we just kind of hang out, you know. What if God was one of us? It's that sort of thing. God is close, but we need to understand that it's God who's close. Many of us come from backgrounds where the transcendence was overemphasized and so you felt crushed. But many of us also, and this is I think the more pertinent problem in the church in America, is the fact that we don't regard anything as really sacred. You know, the Oval Office means something totally different now than it used to. Um, there's no sense of the sacred. There's no respect. And so there's a sense of casualness towards God. We need to sometimes step back and think for a moment about God. How great He is. How awesome He is. This is what the walls from the tabernacle stand for. Now, I don't know what pushes your button on this, but what pushes the button for me, when I really begin to appreciate the awesomeness of God, sometimes a depth of wonder that makes me shudder, more often than not, it happens when I consider the universe. When I consider the stars. Several weeks ago, there was this incredible display of the northern lights here in the Twin Cities. You usually can't see them very well. But my wife and I were out walking, and about 10.30, all of a sudden, the sky was just erupting with these northern lights. And I know that the scientists will tell you that it's the collusion of, you know, solar wind with the atmosphere, blah, 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 blah. There isn't a point. It shows the greatness of God, the, the, the magnificence of God. Look at God paint with those broad strokes. It's just awe-inspiring. Think with me for a little bit here about the universe in which we live. Okay, and I just want to get a sense of the bigness of God. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God, Psalms 19.1. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that the invisible things of God can be clearly seen by the things which He has made, even His eternal power in God. If you look at the things which God has made, it shows forth His power, even His deity. I want to think about this for a second. The 
bigness and mightiness of God. Our sun is of something like a million miles in diameter. You can fit thousands of Earths inside of our sun. Our sun is 92 million miles away from us. Put on your thinking caps and do not turn me out. Now, numbers sometimes bore people, but these numbers are the heavens declaring the glory of God. So pay attention. It takes eight minutes for light to reach the earth and the sun. The sun might have blown up seven minutes ago, and we'll find out in one minute. There's a time delay because it takes time for light to travel. It travels at 186,000 miles per second. Think about that. If you shine a flashlight around the world, and just shine a light so it can travel around the world if there's no obstruction, it will go around the world, I figured this out and I forgot, about eight times, eight and a half times in one second. Shine a light, that's it. That's how fast, and it takes like eight minutes to get to us, because we're 92 million miles away. But that doesn't even begin to get at the greatness of God. We are about, our sun is 30,000 light years from the center of our galaxy. Light traveling at 186,000 miles per second takes 30,000 years to get there. We live in a big universe. If you want to try to get to the other side of the universe, uh, other side of the galaxy, it will take you 100,000 light years. The nearest star in our galaxy is 4.2 light years away. That's the closest one. If you were to get into a jumbo jet that can travel 600 miles an hour and try to go there, it would take you 5 million years. That's the closest one. Our galaxy, as I said, is 100,000 light years across. It's 1,000 light years thick in the middle. And our sun is about one of 10 billion suns in our galaxy. You begin to feel very small. Put this down to scale. Put this down to scale. If the entire galaxy was the planet Earth, okay, so shrink the entire galaxy down to the planet Earth, our Earth would be so small you couldn't see it. Okay, go to scale now. It would be the size of a microscopic virus that you'd have to use a superpowered uh, a microscope to even see. That'd be our whole Earth. Our sun would just be a fraction bigger than this, but the size of a single cell organism, but you still couldn't see it with the naked eye. Our entire solar system would fit on your thumbnail if our galaxy was the size of the planet Earth. Get a, get a grasp of this whole thing. The nearest star would be the size of an amoeba about a half a mile away from us on this Earth or the size of this virus. This is enough with the humanity sermon. And the nearest galaxy would be about from here to the moon. Our galaxy, however, is a rather small galaxy, as galaxies go. I feel like Carl Sagan all of a sudden. <laughs> Our galaxy is a member of a galaxy cluster which has 30 galaxies in it. The galaxy cluster is 7 million light years across. There are many galaxy clusters out there. In fact, there are millions of galaxy clusters out there. Some galaxy clusters have upwards of a trillion stars in them. A trillion is a lot. Now, we're getting used to it because we hear about the, 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 the national debt being trillions of dollars. Here's how big a trillion is. If you're counting dollars at one a second, it would take you, if you're counting a million, it would take you ten days. One, two, it would take you ten days. If you're counting a trillion dollars, it would take you over 32,000 years. <laughs> that's a lot of stars. That's not the universe. That's just some of these galaxy clusters. There are billions of galaxies clusters and some super clusters. The nearest galaxy cluster is called Virgo. It's 50 million light years across. That's, that means it's seven times as big as our galaxy clusters. And it contains over a thousand galaxies. Here's what freaks me out. The universe is growing. Did you know that? The farthest, it, it, everything's expanding. The farthest
can tell at close to the speed of light. The universe is growing at about 300,000 miles per second. It's, it's like a balloon growing 300,000 miles per second. And the edge of this universe is something like 15 to 20 billion light years away. Step back for a second, and now hear what the Word of God says when it tells us that He holds, He holds the whole world. And the author's thinking about everything that's created. He holds the creation in the palm of His hand. All of those billions and billions and billions of stars, all of the magnificence of us, the grandeur of it, how small we are, He holds it all in the palm of His hand. When we talk about God, we're talking about that God. We're talking about the God who spoke it all into existence. Let there be billions and billions. Boom, there they are. He holds them all into existence. He knows every molecule and keeps every molecule of the farthest nebulae cloud that is 200 million miles across. He holds every molecule of it into existence. And it causes me just to, when I think about the magnitude of the cosmos, the grandness of the cosmos, that's the work of the Creator. But now when I think about the Creator, my mind blows. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, it's all here by chance. It's all here by chance. It just is. There are people who say that. I'm debating a guy on the internet now who, who says that. It's all by chance. It's just, it just happens to be. Let me share with you two reasons why it couldn't just happen to be. Keep your thinking caps on. Because now it's getting good. For one thing, if, if we know anything about the universe, we know it's running out of energy. We don't know how energy could ever recycle itself. It's running out of energy, it's expanding in a unilateral direction, and so the ultimate end of the universe, some 60 billion years from now, they predict, will be heat death, which means it will all be ice, it will be just, there will be no available energy. Energy is winding out. You've got to ask the question, if, something, if the universe is winding out, how did it ever get wound up? There's no way that energy can just recycle itself. If it's always been, it would have run out by now. Thank you. Argument number two. The... The probability of life occurring on any planet is infinitesimally small. Just follow me on this. Maybe I'm the only one in this place that gets into it. If you get into it, say amen. Right, good. like some kind of egghead professor up here. Here's the thing. I've been doing my, I've been brushing up on astronomy. I've always liked astronomy and I just brushed up on it this week. It just blows my mind. Follow this. You know how incredible it is that life would occur on the planet Earth or on any planet? If the rate, this is not believing cosmologists. Now these are just cosmologists here. Here's what they say. If the rate of the expansion of the universe had been faster or slower by one billionth of a, fra a fraction of one billionth, life would not have occurred. In fact, solar systems would not have even developed. There would have been too much expanse or too much gravity to pull it back into, uh, into a solid ball. If the interaction of the four, do not turn me up, if the interaction of the four fundamental laws of nature had been slightly different, that's the, 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 the four foundational forces, the gravitational force, uh, the strong force, the weak force, and the electromagnetic force, all that stuff. If it had been one billionth of a fraction stronger or weaker, life could not have occurred. If the balance of matter and antimatter had been off by one ten billionth, the universe could not have come into being at all. You wouldn't have had what they call the Big Bang. If the ratio of carbon to oxygen had been slightly different, life would not be possible. If the mass of a proton had been one one hundredth thicker or thinner, hydrogen uh, would be unstable and life as we know it could not form. This is just out of the textbooks here, folks. If the temperature range had been hotter or colder by one percent of the total temperature range, life could not have occurred. If you didn't have the exact amount of metals, especially iron, and radioactive material, and water compounds mixed together, life could not have occurred. And even if you get all that together, and it's right there sitting before you, we don't have a clue. 
point of getting it there in the first place is almost infinitesimal. And then they say, well, maybe a lightning bolt came down and struck it, and somehow, somehow life came about. It's interesting how the, the, the secular textbooks try to hide the improbability of this. Let me quote to you from a high school textbook that I checked up here just this last Friday, which is talking about this. And here's what this uh, person says. Life started once organic molecules learned to make copies of themselves so they could pass on instructions to guarantee their success. Unquote. <laughs> that explains a whole lot. I mean, oh, they learned. A silly me. They learned. Well, who taught the little boogers? I mean, where did they get the little tiny brains? You don't just learn something like this. Okay, let me draw an analogy here, and then I'm going to bring it home. Here's an analogy. Many cosmologists, there's some disagreement about this. This is called what's called the anthropic principle. But they argue that there's 24 very improbable variables, variables that have to occur, each of which have about the probability of one in a million or one in a billion of happening. But there's 24 of them that have to be sequenced together for life to happen. Let me just take six of these, the six that all agree upon, and talk about the probability of that. Just to make it simple, instead of talking about billions, let's just talk about millions. Let's say you have a TV screen, and you have six knobs on this TV screen. And each knob has a billion possible dials. Okay? A million possible dials. So you have six dials, each with a million possible uh, digits on it. And you will get a station in if you get the one right dial on each of the six. Okay? If you get all six right, each have a million, and then you'll get a station in, and you've got one shot at it. Now, the reason I say you've got one shot at it is because everything we know about the universe tells us it's going one time. This has never happened before. Energy doesn't recycle. It's a one-shot deal. What are the chances that you will, by chance, get a station in? First of all, the fact that you can get a station in already shows a lot of design. Could that happen by chance? But let's not go there. This crappy tells <laughs> Your odds of getting one a station right are not one in six million. Some people think that, oh, it's one in six million, very improbable. It's way, way worse than that. It's one in a million times 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 one in a million. And I'm estimating it conservatively here, okay? That works out to be one to ten to three hundred thousand power. I figured it out. <laughs> Which means your odds are 1 in 10 with 300,000 zeros after it. Now here's the deal. We're sitting here watching the television screen. In fact, like the Truman Show, we are the television screen. We're it. Reality has happened. Here we are. We're breathing. We're thinking. We're living. And we know how improbable it is. So you've got to ask the question, who tuned us in? Well, you could say it's just all here by chance. If you don't believe in God, that's basically what you're saying. Either we're very, very, very lucky, or someone designed this TV set to have it tuned into the station that we are. Those are your odds. Those are your chances. If you don't believe in God, if you don't think there's a creator to this whole thing, you might be right. Your odds are about one in a zillion trillion that you're right. But I submit to you that a smarter bet is to say that, in fact, there was a creator to the whole thing. If you were going to the horse track and there was a horse, that could, that had a one in a trillion zillion chance of winning, I would recommend that you don't bet on it. Especially not a lot. But what the atheist is doing is you're wagering eternity on the hope that the one in a trillion zillion chance that this is all here by chance is right. And the odds are very much stacked against you. 
And then think of this. If you don't believe in God, if you're right, if you're right, first of all, you'll never know it. Secondly, the best case scenario is that life turned out to be as empty and meaningless as you always thought it was. And the worms got you six feet below the grave, and you're right. In the worst case scenario, you will know it if you're wrong. You will know it, and it may very well be that there's hell to pay, excuse the expression. It may be that this God is going to be a little bit angry because he made it so doggone obvious to you that he was there. And you chose not to believe in him. I want to tell you this morning that there is a creator, and the heavens declare the glory of God. Amen. And you'll look around at Amen. refuses to see it. You look at the, the, the incredible nature, the magnitude, the, the, the magnificence of this creation, the expanse of the creation. We can't begin to even fathom. We know next to nothing about the, the, the whole universe. It's such a mystery. Just this last week, on Wednesday, they published this report that they discovered neutrinos have mass. Neutrinos. You know, right, right now there are millions of neutrinos every second going through us. These things are so small they can go through several, several trillion miles of solid lead and never collide with another particle. But we know they exist. And they discovered that they have ma mass to them. We thought they didn't have any mass. And now they're saying, they just said on, on Wednesday, this Letterman was a Laurel, uh, not, not the David Letterman, but this other Letterman who's a physicist. Well, it wasn't the David Letterman show too, but he was saying we got to rewrite the books now about physics because this, this, it shows you that we really have, are still in a primitive stage in understanding anything. We don't, this world, the reality, you guys, we're here, we're real, we exist, it's an incredible thing, and we know next to nothing about it, but it's got to blow your mind just to look around. Think of the fact that you, you can see right now, what's happening when you look at me? The, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic, wake up, it's a fantastic reality, which Important. All that we dwell on, all of our plans, all of our schemes, 
I'm nothing next to him, and they're meaningless without him. Amen? All of history, he experiences in a moment. It's to him, against the infinite background of his eternal life, it's a, we think it's, you know, billions of years is a lot, but to him it's just, bam, it's just there. This is a God who always has been, always will be, has no limits to his mind, has no limits to his power, has no limits to his presence. And when you consider who he is for a moment, what it's got to do to the regenerate heart is to cause you to lower your head and just say, I adore you. I adore you. I will not presume to understand everything about you. What you get reveal of yourself, I will try to appreciate. But when all is said and done, the, the mind has to humble itself. The heart has to humble itself. When you consider for a moment His power, His God, you've got to just melt at the magnitude of God. You've got to bow down before the majesty of God. To think for a moment on the holiness of God, the grandeur, the splendor of God, is to feel the conviction of sin and to know instantaneously that you are unworthy. It's to experience what Isaiah experienced in Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw a bit of the revealed glory of God, and immediately he says, I'm a man of God, I'm a man of unclean lips, I should not be here. That's the presence of God, that's the transcendence of God, that's the bigness of God. And if we don't keep an eye on that, then we end up cheapening God, reducing him down to just one of our bodies. When you behold the splendor of the God who created this universe, the magnitude of his presence, now when you hear that this God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Now I'm just overwhelmed. As the worship team comes forward, I want to just get us to the end with this thought. See, this is what blows me away. There's one thing, one thing that is more incredible than thinking about the greatness of the power and the mind of God, okay? And that is that this God, when you use the word God, you're talking about this God, the God who blows our minds. This God took all of that power, all of that intelligence, and he translated it into a laser beam of love towards you. As fantastic as the universe is, the work of his hands, even more fantastic is the fact that he is that loving towards you. As powerfully as he is that loving towards you individually. As wise as he is, he is loving that loving towards you individually. This God became a man. And this little virus of a planet, the whole solar system just fits into a thumbnail. This God became one of us. And died for us because he loves us. And now I've got even more reason to when I think about Jesus Christ, when I think about God and his love for me, to just be silent and just worship, and just bow. Say, Lord, the only, only appropriate response is worship. People sometimes ask, well, how, why do you worship God? How can you worship another being? If you think for a moment about who we're talking about, you can't help but worship. You can't help but worship. And now I'm, I'm talking about stuff I don't even know. I, 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 words don't say it, so I just want to end with worship. I want to end with worship. Mountains bow down before you, Lord, at the sound of your name. I want us to end by just proclaiming the glory of the great creator God who became our Savior God. And shout to the Lord, all he earth, let us sing. Think about his greatness and then respond in a way that's appropriate given how great he is.